um, to Genesis chapter 30, um, well, actually, we'll go to Matthew 6, 6, and we'll be in several different places in Genesis. Let me pray as we begin. Father, we're opening up your word. We thank you that your word is, is life. And so we, we just ask, Lord, that you, would, that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what I want to do this morning is, um, is take you to several different passages. We're going to talk about learning to pray in different places this morning. And I want, to, uh, I want you to imagine an event in our lives that happened many years ago. But to get into the mood, I want you to think about a very gray morning in Baltimore, Maryland. And the moving van is in front of our house in Baltimore, our new house, not chronologically new, but new to us. And within hours of the moving van coming in, it's drizzling, the sky is gray, it's not a nice day. And I can remember my mood being mirrored by the gray, grayness of the day, because we are moving from a relatively spacious house in Dallas to what I felt like was a smaller house in Baltimore. And here in Dallas, the houses seem to be bigger and less expensive in Baltimore, the houses were smaller and more expensive. We have a growing family, and we're downsizing. And while we're moving in all of the boxes and the furniture, I'm scanning the whole time trying to think about, all right, where, where am I going to have a place where I can sit down and study and have some books? I know that sounds like a weird thing, but, you know, for people who are cooks, they want a nice kitchen. For people who are Mechanics, they know want a nice set of tools. For people who are artists, they want a studio. And for somebody who is a, a student and a pastor, I wasn't a pastor then, but I was doing a lot of disciple making, it's really nice to have a desk and a place for some books and a place to study. Well, that was precious real estate in that house because the house was small. And by the end of the, everything being moved in, I realized there, there was not a place except, except for one spot in the corner of a dingy basement. I tried to find a picture on the internet that would, that would look sort of like this, and I, I couldn't find one, but this was really close. A, pretend the light's not there, a dingy paneled corner of our basement is, is the place that was available. I thought, okay, it's the only place available. So what I did was I absconded a lamp that I didn't think Cindy would miss, and I got our, our beat up old card table, and I set up a place there for me to pray. Now, this is the playroom for the kids, so that playroom often was strewn with Legos and Transformers and blocks and toys and things like that, a little train set at one point in time, and a lot of times the kids were down there, so rather than praying out loud, I would journal, and, and I, have, I have a shelf of journals in my closet that's about, I don't know, three feet long all from that time in Baltimore. So here I, I just contemptuously disdained that corner of the basement when we moved in. When we moved out three years later, guess how I felt about that, that corner? I loved that corner. That corner felt like the bright and radiant presence of God to me for one reason. Not because of the beautiful paintings, not because of the 
of the flowers, not because of, of the fact that there was expensive, uh, you know, nothing about that. It was all because I had met the Lord there and some really good times and some really difficult times, I'd met the Lord there. And the place became very significant. I have another place like that in, in our church building here. Um, it's the conference room. For the past eight years, I've been part of a small group that prays in that room every Thursday morning at 7 o'clock for our city, our state, our nation, our world. And truly, some amazing things have happened over the past eight years. I don't know if they're a result of our prayers, but they certainly happened during that, those eight years that we've been praying. Two members of our church became chiefs of staff in Washington, D.C. Remember, we're praying specifically on Thursday morning for our city, our state, our nation. Two members of our church became chiefs of staff in Washington, D.C., Luke Holland and Joe Kaufman. One became a communications director for a congressman, Cheryl Kaufman. During that time, I got to develop a relationship with Jim Bridenstine that, that just started off really kind of slow and natural. He asked me to give the opening uh, um, prayer for the U.S. Congress five years ago. Jim would call me periodically asking me to pray for him. Before he was confirmed to NASA, one day he called me and he said, I'm facing the fight of my life. Please pray for me. What did we do on Thursday morning? We gathered to pray for Jim Bridenstine, for Luke Collin, for Joe Kaufman, for Cheryl Kaufman, and, and other people as well. So what happens when I walk into that conference center? I love it because I have encountered God in that place. And so the, the main thing I want to present to you this morning is that as you grow in prayer, Place is important. Place is crucial. Place comes to accelerate your life of prayer. Now, to flesh out the idea, what I want to do is I want to take you to the story of Jacob's Ladder in Genesis 28 and then show you five places in the Bible where we're encouraged to pray, and then we'll close with some takeaways. So Genesis 28, God manifests himself to Jacob in a surprising place, and place becomes very important. So Jacob, as most of you know, is the third patriarch in the book of Genesis. He was the youngest son of Isaac and Rebekah, and he was the fraternal twin of Esau, his slightly older brother. In time, Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and those 12 tribes begin to occupy various geographical locations in and around the land of Israel. Jacob is a pivotal figure in biblical history, and truth be told, he is a pivotal figure in world history. He's quite an amazing guy, but you'd never know it from the way he begins his life because he is born into an extremely dysfunctional family. For starters, Jacob's mom and dad played favorites. Isaac greatly prefers Esau. Esau is a man's man. Esau is the kind of guy who would wake up in the morning, get on his north face gear, go off into the wilderness and hunt and shoot game and bring it back, and the family would be fed with sweet-smelling barbecue every single night. Jacob, on the other hand, prefers the shelter of the tents. His mom apparently taught him how to cook and organize the tents and organize all of the action back on the home front. Rebecca greatly prefers Jacob. 
So here, here's the, there's this, function, this dysfunctional family where dad prefers one son, mom prefers the other son, and now there's competition between mom and dad over the sons and competition between the sons over each other. And then the, then the flashpoint comes. One day Esau comes, in, Esau comes in from the hunt, and he's extremely famished. He had forgotten his power bars. And he comes back into the camp, and he is ravenously hungry. And Jacob has been cooking. And when Esau comes into, into camp, he smells the most delicious aroma bubbling in an iron cauldron. It's the smell of garlic and onions and leeks and potatoes and lentils and game. It smelled amazing. And as soon as he smells it, he thinks, oh, I'm, I'm ravenously, ravenously hungry. And you know how sometimes people will call a bowl of chili a bowl of red. Well, that's exactly what Esau does. He says, give me some of that red stuff. I, w- I want that red stuff. Give me that, a mess of that red stuff. He doesn't care what it is. Just, just smells great. Jacob, ever scheming, ever competitive, says, fine, you can have some. Give me your birthright. What? What? Like, that's the most valuable thing that the oldest son had in the ancient world. Give me your birthright. Oh, whatever. Sure. No, no. No, I, no, <laughs> no. I want you to swear to me that you're going to give me your birthright. Jacob is deadly serious about obtaining his birthright. Fast forward many years. Isaac is old and desperately ill. The family thinks that he's on the verge of death. He's not on the verge of death. Isaac will live another 80 years. But they think he's on the verge of death. They they lived a long time back then. Uh, And so Jacob sees his opportunity to exploit a weakness. He gets with his mom, and together they concoct a way to permanently transfer the birthright. So Isaac thinks he's about to die, and he says, Esau, head out to the fields, give me some game, cook me up your best barbecue with your best barbecue sauce. We're going to have a private ceremony where I'm going to transfer my birthright to you. Why didn't he do it publicly? That's how they always did it in the ancient world. Well, because there's competition among the boys. He's going to do it privately. Jacob and Rebecca hear about this, and Rebecca says, Jacob, come here, quick. All right, look, I want you to get the best, best goat you've got. We're going to concoct this meal. I'm going to use my best recipe, and you're going to go in before Esau and extort the birthright from your father. Jacob says, I, what, are you kidding me? He's going to know it's, he's going to know it's me. Nope. You're going to put on animal skins. You're going to put on Esau's clothing. You're going to go into your father's room and you're going to get the birthright. So he does all of that. They cook up this meal. They go into dad's room, and Isaac can't see. He's blind, and he feels the animal skins, and he smells the clothes. It smells like Esau, and Jacob extorts the birthright from his brother and from his father. What happens when Esau comes back? Esau is white hot with rage. He vows to kill his brother. Isaac soon discovers his mistake, but he can't undo what he's done. In the ancient world, he couldn't do that. He can't undo that. And so he realizes that his son, who has the birthright, is going to be killed by his twin brother. So Isaac says, Jacob, I want you to leave the land of Canaan. I want you to go to your mother's hometown of Padan Aram. I want you to stay with your uncle Laban. 
And, uh, and there you'll find shelter and maybe marry and get a family. And so off he goes. And I, I want you to imagine a man setting off on a 400-mile backpacking trip, and he's not a backpacker. And it's, just imagine a slump-shoulder guy, and he is in the process of being broken. He's exploited his father. He crushed his mother. He alienated his brother. He's totally alone with no clear future. Let me take a break from the story for a second and just pause for some insight. Who does God teach about prayer? Is it the smug, the successful, and the self-satisfied? Not usually. God can sometimes teach people who are smug, successful, and self-satisfied about prayer, but not usually. Usually the people who learn about prayer are the people who have encountered great brokenness. And in their brokenness, they come to God desperate for God's intervention, desperate for His mercy, and they plead to Him for some fresh intervention and transformation. We see this in Psalm 34, verse 18. God is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. If you see somebody on the top of the world, they're doing just great. They're performing fantastically. Good for them. I'm glad they're in that place. But what Psalm 34, 18 says is that God is near to the person who is brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. That doesn't mean we always have to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. What that means is that God loves to intervene in the lives of those people. One of the reasons why I think Celebrate Recovery has been so transformative for Cindy and I and for our marriage and for our family is because we've learned how to meet God in those places of brokenness, those places where you feel crushed. And we've seen God's grace and power in those places. God is near to people in those places. Those are the people who learn how to pray. You think about Jacob in this place. Behind him is Beersheba, where his brother wants to kill him. In front of him is Padan Aram, where Laban wants to exploit him. And now he is in a howling wilderness without his mom and dad, without the comfort of their shelter. And what I want to say to you, just right off the bat, is that if you're in a place of brokenness, pain, affliction, destitution, you have an opportunity to encounter the nearness of God in some really powerful ways. And he will teach you in that place how to learn to pray. One of the biggest mistakes that people make in prayer, as they say, I'm broken. I don't feel the presence of God. And it's important to resist and reject that form of thinking. What's important is to say, I'm broken and God is near me. And I am going to pray as I learn how to fellowship with a God who is near to the brokenhearted. That's the, that's the way to pray in that, in that space. Okay, back to the Back to the, to the story. He's going to go 400 miles just to get to the oasis of Haran, okay? But only going 54 miles, God manifests his presence. Um, and he approaches the walled city of Luz. Luz was a, a walled city of probably no more than 2,500 people. But Jacob is not going to go to that city. He's too much pain, too much shame, too much guilt. He's not going to go to any city. He's going to stay out 
in the wilderness. And so, being totally exhausted, he lays down on hard ground, and for a pillow, he selects a rock. You've got to be pretty desperate to uh, select a rock for a pillow. This is the lowest point in his life. He is hit bottom. Jacob drifts off to sleep. And then, incredibly, it happens. He sees a stairway to heaven. Jacob sees a set of stairs leading up into the skies, and there seems to be a beehive of activity up and down those stairs. What really grabs his attention is the person at the top. At the top of the set of stairs is the God of the universe. The Hebrew word means, in the text, means he is standing. The God of the universe is standing at the top of the stairs. It means to stand in authority. It means to stand in preeminence. It means to stand in power. I'm telling you that I've told you about the fact that we've taken our son and daughter-in-law's dog for a year. And I mean, what I, whenever I face new things that are hard, I buy books and take courses. So I've read Two books in the past week about dog training. I'm now taking a course by Mike Ritland, which is really good. And Mike Ritland talks about how to stand in front of a dog so that the dog knows you mean business. And this dog is a big German shepherd hound mix. And when he barks, he means business. But he's a little soft teenager. He looks, like, he looks mean, but he, he's a little teenager. And the more I have powered up in my presence, just acting like, hey, pal, I'm in control, and you're not. I feed, clothe, and shelter you. I don't clothe them, actually. <laughs> but I feed you, and I shelter you, and it's going to be my way. And I'm, I'm, he didn't understand any of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking like I'm in power. That's what the Hebrew word means. It means that the God of the universe is standing in authority at the top. Now, what Jacob was really seeing was uh, an ancient, a vision of an ancient ziggurat, which was a temple in the ancient world, a stairway literally up to the heavens, and he's seeing the real God of the universe right there on top, standing in total authority. And the one at the top is I am. He's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And in the dream, Jacob realizes for the first time that the God of the universe is real. See, see all, all this time, he's been thinking, I've got to manipulate people. I've got to deceive people. I've got to power up on people. In order to get my way, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to do it, make it happen. He could, have, he could have had a big Nike swoosh on his robes. Just do it. That's the Jacob way. Now he realizes that God in his grace has met him in a place of brokenness. And here's what God says. God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, the God of Isaac, your father, the land on which you lie. And think about where he's lying right now. He's lying on hard ground. He's lying with a rock for a pillow. The land upon which you lie, the land upon which you lie broken and destitute and hurting. I'm going to give that land to you and to your offspring. And I can imagine Jacob, you know, going okay, there's the city of Luz over there, and I'm too ashamed even to go into that city, and you're telling me the entire land's going to be mine? Jacob says, God says, your offspring will, shall be like the dust of the earth, not even married yet. 
And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham. And he's, he's recounting this to this deceiver who's broken. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. Wait, what? I'm the deceiver. I'm going in failure up to Haran. And you're telling me that your presence is going to be literally in the space around me as I walk seriously? That's grace. It's mercy. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. That is a stunning example of God's grace, a deceiving liar, a manipulator who was leaving his home t- homeland broken. Now God says, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you wherever, wherever you go, wherever you go. Now, what I find interesting is that God really showed him three things. What Jacob realized is that he has open access to God. He realized that God is active on planet Earth through his angels. And by the way, uh, what did Jesus say? You know, Jesus says to to Nathanael, you know, uh, angels of God are going to be ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I mean, the Son of Man is that bridge. He is that ladder. Jesus is the conduit that takes us into the very presence of God, and the angels will minister to us. But notice what, what happens. Place is important because Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. What did God do? God manifested His localized presence to Jacob. Jacob didn't realize it, but God, in fact, was there. You know, Jacob's dream is a wonderful depiction of spiritual reality. Well, God is omnipresent at the top of the stairs. God also loves to manifest his specific presence in specific places. So how do we then envision the presence of God? Well, let me define omnipresence for you. I did this last week. I'll do it again for you this week. God's omnipresence means that the whole of God, the entirety of God, is contemporaneously present at every point of space and beyond. That's a big mouthful of words. Let me say that again. God, the entirety of God is simultaneously existing at every location and space, both in the universe and beyond on the universe. He is omnipresent. Sometimes we talk about God's omnipresence, like like His immensity. God is immense. The entirety of God is here in this space surrounding me. It's also surrounding the atmosphere of Jupiter. It's also in the farthest galaxy. It's also beyond the boundaries of the universe. God is omnipresent, and God is immense at the same time. But what what that means is that God's presence is always there. You can never leave the presence of God. It's always there. God loves, though, to manifest His specific presence in specific places. He did that in Jesus, right? He did that in Jesus. God is omnipresent, but when Jesus was incarnated, the special localized presence of God was was in Jesus. Same thing happens with you. You come to Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. What happened then? The special localized presence of the triune God comes to reside in your body. Wow, what, a, what an amazing privilege that is. 
Sometimes you can encounter the localized presence of God in a small group. Matthew 18, 20, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. That's the special localized presence of God in the context of a small group. God is omnipresent, but sometimes He loves to manifest His special presence in a specific place. Sometimes God does this in worship. Psalm 22, verse 3 talks about God being enthroned on the praises of Israel. So as, as Israel is praising God, He pours out a special sense of His presence. Why did that dingy, dark, cheerless corner of a basement in Baltimore become so special to me? Because I encountered the presence of God as I poured out my life in that journal with my four children behind me playing blocks and Legos and sometimes Super Mario Brothers. Sometimes I'll listen to the Super Mario Brothers song, you know, it reminds me of, hey, God was really good to me in Baltimore when I was praying at my, at my desk. So there's nothing magical about those places. It's just that they, they're special to you because God met you there. All right, now I want to, I want to turn the corner. And let's look, let's look at the five places in the Bible where God might manifest himself to you as you pray. First place is your closet. Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your inner room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So where does that tell you God is when you're praying in your closet? In your closet. Who's seeing you in your closet. The God who is omnipresent loves to manifest His special presence in those places in your personal life where you pray on a regular, regular basis. And he will reward you, fellowship with you, be with you in that place. Now, what I love about, about this particular verse is that it occurs in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' basic discipleship for his 12 disciples and the others who came to hear, the, hear their, their, their retreat, I guess you could say. And the first positive thing he says about prayer before he gives us the, the Lord's Prayer is go someplace, get alone, and pray. Preferably that place needs to be a place that is so private where you can pour out your heart in authenticity toward God. No security cameras around, no minders around. You're going to check on your theology. Nobody who will criticize the way you said that, you pronounced that term wrong, it should be done this way, none of that. It's just you and God, you pouring out your heart to the God of the universe. Now, over the past several weeks, I've been asking people who are seasoned in prayer where they go in their house. <laughs> and there's been a unifying theme. And the unifying theme is, oh, it's no place really special. No place special. No special, no special paintings in the background, no special plants in the planners, no special decorations necessarily. In fact, it's kind of an ordinary place, but it's the place where I meet God and encounter God. You know, in Baltimore, before, before I committed to the, to the basement, I did not want to go down in the basement. Before I committed to that, we had a deck out, in, out behind our kitchen, and the deck was kind of, a, kind of a small deck, but the deck looked out over um, our backyard and over an irritating site in the background, which was a big water tower. 
did not want a water tower in my sight when I was praying. But before I started praying in the basement, I prayed out in the deck. And I loved that deck only after two months or three months. Pretty soon it got too cold to be out in that deck. I had to go out into the basement. But I loved the deck because of a specific incident where God answered prayer out on that deck related to the church we were in, Grace, Grace Fellowship Church at the time. So the first place is your closet or your inner room. Second place. Second place is outside in nature. And what I love about um, Psalm 104, 24 through 26, is what he says. Think about the fullness, the abundance, and the playfulness of this, these two verses. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you have formed to play there, like a whale, you know, like, do you hear the playfulness? He's, he's worshiping God because God is a creator who creates so effusively and abundantly, it's almost like God is playing with all the creatures that He has made. Wouldn't you say that's true? What was God thinking when He made a giraffe? That's kind of cool. What was He thinking when He, when he made a little praying manis, you know? I mean, you know, God's creativity. He's observing the creativity that's there in nature. Well, to observe creativity, you've got to be out in nature, and you've got to be able to reflect upon nature. Uh, we see the same thing in Psalm 19, 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the work of God, the sky proclaims the work of His hands, and then at the end of the psalm, He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. There are a lot of scholars who kind of wonder, was He sitting on a rock when He was, when he was praising God out in nature? Maybe, maybe. But He's using nature as a place where He is able to pray. So I've got a, I've got a place. Um, Osage Hill State Park, there it is. That's a pretty cool picture. But I've got, a, I've got a place at Osage Hills where I have gone regularly. I set up my camp chair, I put my feet up on the rock, and I pray in that place. And there's nothing special about that place. It's not the coolest place at Osage Hills by far, but it's a place where I have encountered God in the past. And on several occasions in that place encountered God with my two boys. That's a special place. So one place is in your, in your inner room, your closet. Another place is out, is out of nature. Here's a third place. A third place is connecting with a friend, Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. I, I love the way he puts that. I don't know that Jesus is making a formal I am statement. But many times Jesus will use the term I am as, as an active verb referring to his position as the God of the universe. There I am as God in the space surrounding where you are praying. The active presence of God is there in that place of community. 
So for the past 23 years, uh, my office on Wednesday afternoons has been that sanctified place. For the past 23 years, I've met with my good friend Jeff Grisham uh, every Wednesday. We pray for our families, and I will tell you that in the early years, uh, we thought our kids could do no wrong. We thought our kids were awesome and amazing, just like you thought, felt about your kids, you know. Then came the teen years, and we're just going, God, please help us. We're desperate. And then come some rough times in our kids' adult years. And Jeff and I prayed relentlessly for our kids. And there were times where I would call Jeff, you know, one time in particular, probably 11.45, 12 o'clock, and Jeff said, meet you at the church, 15 minutes. We met. I told him what was going on. He said, well, let me tell you what's going on, my, going on with mine. And we prayed for each other. Now, <clears throat> by God's enormous grace and mercy, all four of our kids are thriving, are thriving. I'm humbled by that. Cindy and I are grateful for that. They're thriving. But I will tell you that, that when I think of my children thriving, I have to say that one of the things that God was doing for 23 years as he was building a culture of intercession within our two families that now is having generational influence as our children are having children. So what I'm saying is, when two or three are gathered together in my name, God will manifest his special localized presence. And this implies that this is a discipline that you do on a regular basis. That leads us to the fourth place. Uh, fourth place is small groups. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. You know, there are, there are over 59 one another verses in the New Testament. There are verses like encourage each other, love one another, carry each other's burdens, and so on. Four dozen one another verses. And the idea is that we are to be doing things in community, and that verse assumes several things. It assumes I'm safe enough to hear a confession of sin. If you confess your sin to me, and I say to you, how dare you? What were, what were you thinking? What, what is that? Does that make you, yep, I'm going to confess my sins to you next week as well. No. no you're going to kind of come back into your shell and say, I'm not ever doing that again. That verse assumes that you are, that you are um, safe enough to hear a confession of sin. It also assumes that you are vulnerable enough to confess your sins, and it assumes that you are open to the supernatural intervention of God in the whole process. This is, this is a, a very amazing verse that talks about the supernatural nature of community. It has to be safe, you have to be vulnerable, and you have to expect that God is going to intervene and do something. <clears throat> As most of you know, we have a healing prayer team here at Grace, and most of the weeks of the year we have not one but two, and sometimes we have more than we can, we can handle in a week. Well, there have been, there've been times where, um, we've been doing this for over five years now, there have been, there've been times where um, we will pray over a person's needs, and at the end of the prayer time, 
every member of the prayer team will go, wow, that, that was amazing. That was amazing. In our church, people will come in for physical needs. They'll come in for emotional needs. They'll come in for spiritual needs. And we have seen some remarkable answers to prayer, especially in the past, I would say, two to three years. Um, when you are actively involved in a small group, actively involved in prayer, God will manifest His special localized presence in some very powerful ways. Here's the final way. Fifth place is in a large group. Acts chapter 4, verse 23, the apostles were arrested, they were interrogated and released. Where did they go as soon as they were released? They went back to their friends who met on the Temple Mount and they reported all the things that, that had happened. And uh, they uh, lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and in the sea and everything in them. What, what they're doing is they're gathering corporately to worship. And one of the things that we, we find out is that, is that in their worship, the foundations were shaken. God showed up in that place supernaturally. Um, many years ago, um, I saw the power of corporate worship in a really, really unique way. Um, a friend of mine who I had met through Search Ministries had come to Christ out of the Dallas gay community, and he was very, very involved in the Dallas gay community. Came to Christ, began going to a particular church in Dallas that had fantastic corporate worship. And he encountered the presence of God in this place like he had never encountered God before. And we would meet together for discipleship, and one day he said to me, you know, you know what I, what I do, what I'm, what I'm really down, is I drive to the parking lot of that church, I sit there in my car, and I realize that God has touched me in corporate worship, and they're not doing corporate worship then, but that's the place where I've encountered God. So I go to the car, and I pray in the car to God, because I've, I've encountered God in that place. So that's a fifth place, <clears throat> five places to consider, a place in our house, a place in nature, a place with a friend, a place with our group, a place for corporate worship. The God who is, who is omnipresent loves to manifest His specific localized presence when we are about these five disciplines. So let me then give you some key takeaways. Here are four takeaways that I think are relative to your particular house. Okay, first takeaway is this. Dedicate your home to God with a group of friends. If you have not done this, I think this is a really good thing to do. Maybe you've already done it. Um, maybe you can, maybe you say, I, I want to do this again because we've encountered some conflict in our house. It's an important thing to do. When we, um, when our youngest son was married, we got a VRB house in Seattle for our family and our extended family. We walked into the house, we immediately saw a problem. The problem was the house was covered, and I mean covered, with African witch doctor motif. Covered. With pictures that were sensual pictures. We're talking witch doctor motif. And uh, Cindy got very sick during that time. I had to go to the hospital. Our grandkids were really on edge. The family was on edge. We finally took the pictures down. We took the 
stuff that we could and put it into a closet. We prayed over that place. Um, sometimes, sometimes homes can become a place where spiritual warfare thrives. And I think it's important from time to time to dedicate your home to the Lord and welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit in that place, welcome the presence of God's angelic hosts in that place, welcome the triune God's ministry to you and your family in that place. It's an important thing to do from time to time. Once you've done that, um, I would say establish a place in your home where you will pray. And again, it does not need to be a, a fancy place, but dedicate that particular spot to God. And sometimes, you know, you can, you can pick a place that is just really beautiful, and that can be great, but, you know, sometimes the best places are the places where it's just humble. It's just humble, and it's comfortable to be there. A third thing that you can do is you can pray in that place for 30 days. I say 30 days because 30 days, you know, people are talk about habits. Habits take 30 days to set in place. Some habits take, you know, nine months to set in place. I, I mean, I don't know how long the prayer habit gets set up for you, but I know when I've recalibrated my prayer life, it's always happened best when I say, I'm doing this in this place for 30 days and see how that place takes on a special new significance for you. And then a final thing is to establish a prayer partnership with someone you trust. This might not happen in your house, but, but establish a prayer partnership with someone that you trust. I've had several of these over the course of my Christian life. And I can remember sitting with a friend of mine in Dallas. We met for every week for three years and just, just saying, God, you are in this space. It was La Madeline Restaurant at Southern Methodist University. And that became a sanctified location for me and my friend Dave Fortune. Establish that prayer, prayer partnership and see if the localized presence of God doesn't show up. Finally, you remember that in 1944, D-Day took place. D-Day was the time where we allies went across the English Channel. And what I find amazing is that there were all these places in and around England and America where people were praying. In fact, Roosevelt says, With thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. LaGuardia, the mayor of New York, says, I urge citizens to send forth prayers to Almighty God to bring total victory. People were praying on D-Day. And it's important to remember on the spiritual level that we face battles. And the answer is prayer. And the answer is prayer in particular places as a spiritual discipline. That's why Jesus makes this, this, great, this great statement. He says, when you pray, go into your inner room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's stand for our closing prayer. And David Rumpf is going to pray for us. Let me make sure that is on. Yeah, it's on. with us wherever we are. 
Father, we don't have to be in a confession booth or in a temple or facing the east towards Mecca, that wherever we are throughout our week, throughout our day, in our home, with our uh, small group, uh, in nature, that you desire to meet with us. And may we encounter you multiple times throughout this week in multiple places. Father, may uh, your presence be very real to us wherever we are this week. Thank you for that uh, blessed uh, opportunity and ability. Amen. Those who hope.